0: Welcome to Data Talks, where we figure out how people from a variety of disciplines use data to make professional and personal decisions. This podcast is with Robert Gerlick, who's the executive director of the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, Rocky Mountain Chapter, whose goal is to cure type 1 diabetes. He has over 23 years experience in sales and with for-profit companies and made the transition to JDRF about two years ago. At times, the audio is a little bit choppy, but this podcast is worth listening to, and here's why. We hear from Robert about how the organization uses data to make decisions, the key metrics they monitor regularly, and his own process transitioning from the for-profit to the not-for-profit world. Enjoy. Robert, welcome to Data Talks. I appreciate uh, the chance to talk with you. Uh, thank you. and Welcome. Thank you. My pleasure. Very excited to have you. Robert, can you talk a little bit about your role? at the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation and cool. uh, what it involves.
1: So we're a national organization and we are the largest private fund of type one diabetes research. And JDRF has a number of branches and chapters throughout the country and some affiliates abroad. And I am responsible for the Rocky Mountain chapter, which encompasses Colorado and Wyoming. And in some sense, many nonprofits, you sort of treat it like a small business where there's accounting functions, audit functions, obviously fundraising functions, which to me are the same as sales functions, uh, and obviously operational functions. So just like a small business, you know, someone who heads up a small business as a a CEO or president of a small company, you know, the day-to-day issues, whether it be, you know, office and rent issues and HR issues, but obviously the most important thing is talking to donors. With your clients, so to speak, and liaising with our wonderful staff. We're very fortunate to have people in this organization that are extremely committed.
0: Well, what is the, uh, the goal, the mission of the organization?
1: So, really, the mission is, you know, as it says on you know, the, the JDF logo, improving lives, curing type 1 diabetes. So, I think the mission is they talk about accelerating life changing breakthroughs to cure, treat, and prevent type 1 diabetes and its complications. So, I think that we do that in three ways. We uh, drive research and advocacy. So as it progresses towards a cure, we also want to treat and prevent type 1 diabetes. And we, we want to accelerate fundraising um, by fully engaging, you know, our community and the partners that we have and finding new partners. And, um, you know, just like anything else, I think, you know, from a mission perspective, you know, we want to develop our capacity as a high-performing organisation. And I think culturally, you um, we want to make sure that we look after donors well. Yes, we want to, we're very singularly focused on research and fundraising and being efficient, but at the same time, you know, respectfully, after our donors, and making sure people are stewarded in a, a correct and good manner.
0: So can you explain what type one diabetes is, and uh, what exactly is it, and how is it different from type two? Sure, so right.
1: type diabetes is an autoimmune disease, and just like many autoimmune disease, your body is fighting itself, so to speak. So. In the case of type 1 diabetes, um, the pancreas just is not producing insulin. In some cases, people think that there's a tiny bit of insulin being produced by people. And when people first um, present with the symptoms of type 1 diabetes, they are actually producing often quite reasonable amounts of insulin, but it has to be um, artificial insulin or manufactured insulin has to be added to that equation. But after a period of time, those people tend to need more and more insulin. In the case of type 2 diabetes, it's a metabolic disease, so people... Um, There is some genetic component from what I understand, but obviously through people's lifestyle to some degree, um, what they eat means that their insulin doesn't work quite as well as it could because it's kind of in a sense being overtaxed. And some of those people can, some of those folks with type two diabetes can take pills like metformin, but often they will need to have insulin like type one diabetes. It's kind of a bit weird that they both have the same name because they're quite different diseases biologically. I think they have the name because they have the same end results complications are the same. And if a type two diabetic constantly needs insulin, then in effect, they're presenting exactly like a type one diabetic.
0: Okay. So you have your executive director there? Executive director, yes. And as you mentioned before, you have a, I guess, a multitude of responsibilities. And uh, how do you make your decisions there? And how do you sort of make use uh, data, uh, if you do at all, to make your decisions in terms of, I guess, seeking fundraising, in terms of uh, input, perhaps on funding of projects or what's sort of done with the, the funding, if there's input on that? What sort of data do you all look at and uh, use?
1: So from a, from a well, start not the easy thing because the funding of project done on a national basis, unfortunately. As it happens in Colorado, because a lot of money comes back here because we have a particularly strong type 1 diabetes research center here. Um, so, yeah, so from a, a, funding a project standpoint, a lot of that goes to our New York office where we have scientists on staff and there's review committees and JDF is very, very um, strict about not only about how to give them money, but, you know, making sure that throughout that process, if, if for example, they give someone a project of uh, money for a grant over two years, for example, then, you know, after the first year, they will check on progress and, you know, it's not unheard of that they will pull the money if, you know, they're not really reaching any progress. So they take that very, very seriously. So that generally happens on on a national basis. From a seeking of donors perspective, which is really, you know, bread and butter here from from a chapter perspective, we use several databases. The the main database, we have a CRM, Salesforce.com, as many nonprofits do. But I think more importantly, yes, we have that data in the database, but I think it's more interesting the sort of data we're looking for, because this is very much a business you know all of the little things that would be nice if your insurance agent knew your birthday and your kids names those are vital to us because if you're talking to someone and their kid has type 1 diabetes you really need to know when they got it how long they've had it how they're getting along what certainly what their name is you know often where they go to school because you know we have questions about schools and how schools act with people with an autoimmune disease specifically type 1 diabetes because they have to test And some schools don't like people testing in the classrooms. So these are just little details that we have to really know for two reasons. One, the more information, you know, the better, of course. But from a relationship standpoint, our donors, very frankly, tend to like it when we know what's
0: going on with their families. Right. And you, um, you find that that makes a, a significant difference. Yes. Yeah,
1: so, for example, we have a donor whose kid just won a Fulbright scholarship to teach abroad. And that's a sort of thing that, you know, we don't send out a giant announcement, but it's clear we did mention it in the board meeting. And the, this person happens to be very modest, but it's still a very nice thing for people to know. And I think we, in some, some senses, act like a family that uh, we're very pleased when things go well. And we're very sad when things go poorly for people. You know, unfortunately, we get families in who had loved ones pass from this disease and and so you have to deal with that as well. So it's going to be very, very sensitive. And I know it sounds odd when you're talking about the, those emotional things, but as much information as you have, the more information you have, the more professionally you can behave. And uh, I think the best
0: experience you can give to your clients, donors. Is that different from your typical not-for-profit or uh, that, that sort of aspect? Yeah.
1: I think it might be stylistically, I've always gone to that way to some degree. I think that we have here a common disease that people are worried about, talk about. You get a few people in the room, they will talk about it for a long time because it rightly so consumes a large part of their lives because it's a very worrying thing. For example, sending kids off to college, you know what happens, or kids in school by themselves the whole day. And we've been working on technology to make that easier for people so that they can see how their blood sugars are or their, or their loved ones or their partner. And of course, this isn't only a kid's disease. 80% of the people who have this disease are adults. Those people, fortunately, are living longer and now they're more and more onset at an adult age. But nonetheless, all of those people want that information and as much technology as they can. So I think it used to be um, in other industries I worked in that we'd know a little bit about people's families and we had good relationships with their businesses. And we certainly know about their business and what it goes with their business. So it's somewhat similar that you want to know as much as possible, just the data is a little different.
0: So many of the donors are personally impacted by the disease. Their family members. Is that the rule or the exception or sort of what is it? It's
1: it's somewhat closer to the rule than the exception. So, for example, in the corporate side of things where, you know, companies are kind enough to sponsor us, invariably there's someone reasonably high for the company that has a connection we do get companies. We have one company on the board, a large branch of a San Francisco company, where the guy got involved because he knew of someone that had this disease. But when he moves to Newtown, he always gets involved in a charity because that's how he was brought up and he's just a fine guy. Um, but for the most part, even from a corporate perspective, there is some sort of involvement. Um, we have a very large barber shop chain here. Um, you know, they have 60 or 70 stores in the regional area. And they have a connection to the CEO and his daughter. Yep. So that's, that's often the case. But obviously, from a, you know, we have some large events and we have a walk, a walk uh, several walks, but one, one of the walks we have in Denver, for example, is very family team oriented. So we have some corporate sponsorship and people are very kind, but it's the families that will really make up the, the majority of the fundraising and that sort of event. Now, GALO events tend to be a bit more corporate, but yet someone, you know, who is two, two or three degrees old, so to speak.
0: Right. How do you keep all the stories, the experiences, the uh, sort of, how do you remember them and keep them all, uh, you know, in your head? I mean, we keep some
1: of them in our head because we have personal relationships with people. And we have a certain core group of donors that we see very regularly, I think. Okay. We stay in very regular contact with our donors. And, you know, they talk about stewarding people. And I know it's just an expression. We're really into that.
0: Um, So what was that term that you just used? Stewardship. Oh, stewardship. Okay. Right. Yeah.
1: So I think that... Everyone in the office, I think it's a cultural thing because everyone in the office always knows what's going on, you know, with people. So, for example, we also get money when someone passes away. People will do memorials. Right. You know, often people in the office will write handwritten notes to the family, check in with them. I think we just know there's some things you can't write in the database. You don't want to be too personal about things. But I think we do err on the side of delving a little bit into people's lives if they don't mind because, first of all, we care about people. A lot of people in my office also have a
0: connection. Yeah. Makes sense. Was that the way it was when you first joined the organization?
1: So when I was in the organization originally as a volunteer many years ago, 15 years ago, um, it was to some degree. I think it's become even more so. For example, the current CEO has a kid with this disease, has a son with this disease, and another son who's unfortunately has what they refer to as the markers. So genetically, it looks like one of his other kids is going to get this disease as well. And uh, obviously, we have tests that we can find those things out. So, you know, he comes from a personal place of being involved in this disease and we'll talk about those things in his, you know, in his speeches and when he's going around the country. And I think, you know, that sort of culture just seeps downward. And uh, I think over time we've become more so. But when I go to other branches or other chapters in other parts of the country, there's a similar feeling.
0: You see that across the board. How many uh, branches or how many, how is the, the country divided up?
1: It's Sorry. divided up in regions where we're considered the Western region. We have, you know, we have kind of a Midwest portion and, you know, on the East Coast and the South and things of that nature. But invariably, you know, they're, they're split up kind of geographically, but there's about close to 100
0: Offices. So I imagine like part of your job is to communicate sort of what you all are doing to your funders to some extent, at least. And I guess you can clarify that. But how do you communicate to sort of lay people sort of what's being done with the money? What's the impact? what's What are the findings sure. of the different projects that are funded and by your organization? How do you communicate that? How do you translate those sort of findings? It's, and yeah,
1: yeah, it's interesting, you know, the people who are involved as donors and volunteers, tend to be very passionate and will learn a lot about this disease. So we do research updates physically about four times a year. Um, we also do some research updates at our board meetings and things of that nature. But And then we have an educational symposium once a year as well, which is actually upcoming. But we also obviously send out e-newsletters and you know there's a lot of social media communication. So if there's a new finding, it's very likely... You know, even before we put it on Facebook, someone else has you know someone else in the country, or if there's a finding in a newspaper, the way that just like it does in any business these days, the data is just you know gobbled up right away, and it's you know right very quickly we kind of know what's going on. Um, so
0: you're you're communicating it via is it via email, via newsletters, via these meetings, or what, what is what are the uh, method? I mean, yeah. We tend
1: to send out to donors physical newsletter a couple of times a year, as well as those e-newsletters. And then we have meetings where speakers will come in from either scientists or, you know, well-versed lay people to explain the research a few times a year as well. And we're very fortunate, again, in the Denver metro area that we have a hospital that's dedicated to this so that there's no shortage of medical professionals that can help, you know, disseminate that information.
0: And and you have, you have some, some, uh, yeah, sorry.
1: We have speakers come to board meetings as well. People from the uh, pump manufacturers or from continuous glucose monitor manufacturers or all of those sort of people that deal with disease on different levels uh, also want to get in front of our sort of board members and donors as well. So often we invite those people to our meetings and uh, people want lots of information and uh, they want it pretty, pretty quickly because, you know, if they have a glimmer of hope for their family member. Or for themselves, obviously that's huge.
0: Well, what what is the like the most important thing for you when you're uh, making a connection with a family or a donor or someone you know? And maybe we've covered it already, but uh, what, what would you say? Are, yeah, I think the most important
1: thing, especially it really depends when you meet them. If someone, if you meet someone when their family member or themselves have just been diagnosed with this disease, you really have to gauge whether they're ready to talk to someone about it yet, or they're really kind of in a sense drinking from the fire hose. It's a very tough disease to manage, very hard to regulate your blood sugar because of hormones and adrenaline and emotions and what you put in your mouth and the exercise that you do. And people who say they're very good at it, you know, still, unfortunately, once in a while I get a very bad low blood sugar or a very bad high blood sugar. Now, low blood, blood sugar is very bad because it's just like on the day you're fasting. If you imagine if someone, you know falls asleep and they really don't have enough food in their body, then, you know, they're going to get a very low low blood sugar and unfortunately perhaps, you know, drift into a coma or a seizure. But higher blood sugars over time are really where the diabetes complications you hear are with eyes and feet and neuropathy and things of that nature, kidney issues. That's really the long-term danger of having constant high blood sugars. And a lot of diabetics on both sides are on the high side and unfortunately get a lot of high, high blood sugars. So. It's a worry. And it's something that when you meet someone, they're, they're a bit overwhelmed. And some people will say right away, I really want to get involved with something. You know, can you tell me more about the organization? And, you know, obviously you've got to be empathetic with people. And some people are just, you can tell by their voice they're in shock. You know, I've got this cute little kid and he suddenly has a disease and I have to stick needles in their arm. And it's all very overwhelming. And invariably we will take good notes and check in with them a few weeks later just to make sure things, you know, obviously by telling, we also have a mentor program. So, you know, we, we put them in touch with someone who's a similar demographic, lives geographically reasonably close, and then we have support groups as well so that they can get together when they're ready. I think it's an odd balance turning people who have been diagnosed with a disease into a pipeline effect.
0: Mm-hmm. What equips you and, and your staff to sort of, you know, do that and to, you know, how does that happen? How can somebody do that effectively?
1: Well, I think, you know, our organization is very good at training people, and I think they're yeah. really good at constantly training people, but I think part of it is the sort of people you hire in an organization like this. They have to have a certain personality because, of course, if you call someone and say, they say, oh, my kid was just diagnosed, or my brother was diagnosed, or I was diagnosed with this disease, and if you're going to say, oh, well, that's tough, oh, too bad, Obviously, you're not a person to be doing this. So, you know, a lot of it is listening, and like you would with any business, just trying to get the tenor of the person you're talking to, and, and figure out what they're thinking, and try and find out how you can most help them. Invariably, the best way to most help them originally is just, initially is just to tell them there's resources available, and then they're not alone, and introduce them to people, other people who are like them, so to speak, and then people tend to feel a little better. And I'm, People generally, you have a feeling, you know, when someone wants to be more involved from a a fundraising perspective. And it's not for everybody, obviously. Uh,
0: How can you tell how you can best help uh, the folks that call up and sort of make that initial connection, how they're doing, you know, and how you all can help them and I guess how they can help the organization? I mean, what does that go like? How does that uh...
1: I think it's pretty subtle, actually. So I think invariably you would err on the side of making sure that you're giving someone all of the resources they need and really asking nothing from them, because that's really not the time to ask people to get involved in something. Now, you might want to make them aware that there's an event. So say we have a walk in Denver and, you know, there's going to be 10,000 people there. Some people love that because then they realize they're not alone. And they're like, wow, all of these people are connected to this disease or supporting this disease. And that's a very good feeling, of course. We've had people who were diagnosed a week before one of our events and have shown up or, or called and said, hey, we'd like to go to that event. We heard about it um, because they want to know, again, that they're not alone. But I, I think it's just an intuition to be with, without sounding too non-scientific.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. if people Sometimes I'll call people and they just sound absolutely miserable and worried. You know, all you can do is offer them as much support as possible and find out when there's a time that you can call again or contact them again or have someone else contact them. But you know, again, have a similar background, perhaps, or a similar demographic, and uh, just check back in with them. And invariably, you see a little improvement over time. Just like anything, when it first happens, it's very daunting, and it improves a little bit over time. So you just have to be super careful.
0: How does your own experience with the disease sort of impact you know your role at work, and has it prepared you, or has it you know what is that? Oh,
1: yeah. so, I mean, my son has it, my nephew has it, and my son had it at four, my nephew in his twenties. But obviously, over time, I've met many, many, many people who have this disease. I think the thing that it most prepares you for is you've had lots of kind of individual experiences when, you know, certain things haven't gone well, when someone's had an insulin, you know, had a low or, um, you know, the wrong type of insulin or a piece of equipment is broken or whatever it might be. We've lived through those things. So that's one part of the experience. But the major part of the experience is, in some senses, although it's, the disease never goes away, the way you deal with it day to day gets a little easier. You know, last night I had a worry about my son and he's had this disease for 15 years. You know, sports, and I was worried right, he was going to get of blood sugar, and I checked him to see if he tested his blood sugar where they took enough food with him, you know, and he's 18 years old. You don't stop worrying about it, of course. And I think it gets fueled when there's difficult things at work. If you meet someone who's had a very bad experience or a very bad scare, uh, or, or worst of all, someone has passed away, that sharpens your, you know, your thoughts about your own family. So it goes both ways. Being here makes you worry more about your family and being here gives people more information because we've had this experience. So it, it's great that I've had you know, it's unfortunate I've had this experience, but it's great for people I deal with day-to-day that I know a little bit about. And usually when I talk to a donor and they realize I'm not just a guy working in non my son has type 1 diabetes, then they're usually a lot more open to talking to me.
0: Is that something you share sort of right away or it's something you... Sort of, it depends on the, who the person's at and the conversation. Yeah, exactly.
1: Because the last thing I want it to be is to be about me, you know. Right. So if they say, how much do you know about this disease? Some people say, I know you work there and, and you, you meet a lot of diabetics and you know a lot about this. And I say, yes, we have it in our family. And then they're like, oh, Okay. So, you know, tell me about that to some degree. And then it kind of comforts them a little bit. But, you know, you would, I don't volunteer that right away because, you, again, you want it to be about their situation and find out. And I think they also infer from some of the questions I ask that I must know something about it.
0: So how do you know how your region is doing, your organization that's under your management? H- how do you know if you all are doing well or not, or you're on track in terms of your mission, your job? What are the metrics? What are the things that you look at in order to make that that kind of a judgment?
1: Yeah, so to some degree, I'm, you know, unfortunately or unfortunately, you kind of have to attach numbers to certain things and we want to i want to grow geographically in this region because of course if you live in the metro a metro area like the denver metro area you're going to get more services and there's going to be more events and that's why we've started to do you know we have events in colorado springs colorado we have events in northern colorado and now in aspen so we're trying to spread that out a little bit so i know there'll be some success when we manage managed to you know make sure that people in wyoming have the same services that people have in denver so those are kind of more ethereal, but we really look at numbers. We're a very numbers-based forecasting kind of organization. We insist on being, you know, eighty cents on our dollar goes to research through our organization. So as a consequence, monthly we look at forecasts to see how our events are doing. We have a budget. We write. We've written our budget long ago for for the next fiscal year, which starts in July. And you know, our goal is always to exceed that budget, and that's the way am going. And we look at that very carefully. We obviously try and cut as many costs as possible while increasing fundraising
0: so there's the efficiency of the organization there's a certain maximum that you can spend on overhead or operations is is that what you meant by the 80% versus the 20% yeah Yeah. so we want
1: as an organization to spend as little money as possible like everyone does on CIS and salaries. We have a very volunteer-driven organization, so we're very fortunate. When we have our walk, for example, we have probably 250 volunteers on that day. Um, you know, that gala, probably 100 volunteers and other events, 50 volunteers. And we have people coming to the office almost constantly to volunteer. we will have people, have some, Wednesday will be their day for coming in and spending four or five hours in the office. So we have a lot of wonderful volunteers. We couldn't do this without them. But yes, as an organization, we're very strict about the efficiencies because donors want to know that their money isn't being wasted and as much as possible is going to research.
0: What would you say is the single most important metric that you all pay attention to?
1: I think it is our efficiency. I mean, what we normally do is we have this forecasting tool where we look at all of the events, and we'll see really what the net is of those events. I mean, it's all well, if you could, you know, if, if we have a, a beautiful black-tie that raises $10 million, but, you know, it costs $9 million, then that's not really a great thing. So we have to kind of have a strike-fine a balance and it is that net or that efficiency that's really the most important. So I think no one really cares what you know, we're raising from a gross perspective, just like any business. It sounds lovely, but it's really, you know, useless, you know, from the perspective of it you know, efficiency and making sure we're doing the right
0: thing. So that kind of data is obtained through your accounting system through other. Yeah. yeah. So you look at the reports, quarterly reports and that sort of thing. Yeah. And in fact, or, it's something we've
1: got yeah. the whole time. we the time actually have a sort of a, a financial yeah. software that updates nightly after if any, you know, banking has been done and any money is posted, mm-hmm. it might check what well. straight to national from one of our donors. or we put it in locally and, that following morning, once the compositors hit it, hits the financial software, and we look at it. We can look at it daily, and do look at it daily. And you can pull certain graphs, but either we can do it based on events for our bike riding or challenge events. We have runs and things of that nature for our walks, for our gales, for our golf events. We can look at those things individually. We can look at major gifts, which is a big, good, a very good net component. A lot of uh, charities refer to those as leadership giving, uh, major gifts, but someone just decides they want to write a check Um, and some of our donors actually can write a check over a period of years if they want to, they can pledge, so to speak. We see a very good efficiency, so we're looking at all of those things.
0: So the the title of my podcast is Data Talk, so any other sources of data, any other bits of information that are important for you in your job that maybe we haven't covered or really just only touched on in passing?
1: So we do two other big things in a We have a the government relations or advocacy department that helps us make sure, say if we fund a product and it comes to fruition and it's going to help people's lives, yep. um, it's good to anyone unless people can get hold of it. So if you, if, if either insurance companies or Medicaid or whatever it might be, Medicare, don't approve it, that's something that advocacy department you know, works very hard on. And obviously that's kind of different data sets. Um, and the other thing I think about from the data perspective is when people are as they refer to it, onset, and they get this disease. We need to find out about that, but there are HIPAA laws in America, and rightly so, but what we do is we approach all of the medical professionals locally and ask them if they would mind having their patients opt in, if they wish to, to us. So basically we will get forms once a month or once every a couple of weeks from local hospitals saying, hey, these are your new, the new patients, and then we send them out what we refer to as a bag of hope, which is a bag with information in it and some test kits. And for kids, there's a teddy bear, places to test blood sugar on the arms, you know, little patches and different books. And then there's a teen kit, there's an adult kit, there's a pregnancy kit. So depending on the demographic, we send out a sort of a kit to people who are just onset. And so that's a very important data for us for, for many, many reasons. One is it might be that's the only contact we have with those people. They're not really interested in being involved, but they were very interested in getting some information, perhaps being welcomed, and then they realize for whatever reason it's not for them, they just want to go on with their lives and try and manage this disease by themselves, or in other ways or with other organizations. And then other people get involved with us right away, and some people over time. So that's a very important set of data for us because invariably that's our first touch point with the people who have had this disease. So through the outreach uh, efforts of our chapter and nationally, um, you
0: know, we get to know these people. Through uh, physicians and through hospitals and uh, so sort of get linked through you? yeah, In, in an opt-in way. Really. Yeah, sure, sure. So tell me about the advocacy. Are you involved in advocacy and uh, what does that look like? Yeah, we are
1: involved in advocacy. So yeah. we have something exciting upcoming, actually. So we have an advocacy committee, um, but the biggest role of that committee is to send, is to, to send people locally to see their congresspeople and their, their senators And so generally, you know, these guys are busy and sometimes you get to see them and sometimes you get to see their health aides. But invariably, if you've got local people visiting a congressman's office, they will let you come and it's something they're used to doing. And you'll set up an appointment with their aides and you'll send someone in and you'll remind them why it's important for them to, you know, fund NIH funding for type 1 diabetes or or things of that nature. Or if there's something we're doing with Medicaid or trying to get FDA approval a little faster or something. Those are the sort of conversations we have locally. And then once a year, we will choose people to go to Congress physically to D.C. from one of the chapters and kind of do a blitz. And again, they've made appointments. It's a day they know about. And then every second year, we actually do it with kids. There's something called Children's Congress, which is upcoming in July. And all the kids wear the same colored T-shirts. Wow. And they basically blitz, you know, hundreds and hundreds of kids, meet with the committees and get on the trains in D.C. and go meet their congresspeople and their senators. And uh, it's it's kind of a well-known event. And we have this year, for example, uh, someone from a young woman from Denver, two from Colorado Springs and two from Wyoming, headed over to Washington, D.C. in July to have those meetings. And uh, it's great for the kids and it's great for the senators and the congresspeople. The representatives always say that they remember this. Day. Um, the kids have to write an essay to get involved. The very young ones obviously dictate it to their parents, um, and then we we vet them all and we decide and we choose some kids to go to Congress, and it's uh, it's quite powerful.
0: Yeah, I bet. How do you do? How do you all decide uh, when you go and you make those contacts? Like, what do you say? Like, what? I guess they have like the representatives typically probably they have limited time or their staffers, right? They limited do. time. So what? What do you, how do you decide on what you're going to present or say in that limited time?
1: So they're kind of given speaking points because we have a national advocacy department in DC that's very strong and very smart and knows exactly what's needed. So for example, we just got funded something called the Special Diabetes Project, which is a joint type 1 and type 2 uh, NIH funding package. And part of that funding goes to native people with type 2 diabetes, which is unfortunately Mm. a large problem. And some of that funding goes to Taiwan 1 diabetes research. One of the projects it goes to is a project where people get tested to see if they're a sibling of someone or a relative of someone that has the disease. What is the likelihood of them getting the disease? So in effect, it's a prevention study and that's funded by NIH dollars. And so we will have talking points as to why that's important. And obviously they gear it for kids to some degree when kids are going. So, you know, they keep it a little simpler. But it's just as effective.
0: Primary focus is to encourage lawmakers, policymakers to continue to fund and expand funding in this area. then.
1: That's one of the big goals and part of it. It's interesting because diabetes is unfortunately about the third most expensive and prevalent disease, but it's about the April 19 funding. so there's still a long way to go. But yes, it could also be, you know trying to encourage them to encourage the, the FDA to approve a continuous glucose monitor or okay. or a pump. Or or some new device, you know, we're working on smart insulin now, which you just lay down in the body and then work when needed. And obviously, it's it's in studies currently. But if it were to come to fruition, you know, it's great that it works. But then again, we have to get it to the people. So those are the sort of conversations you have to have with the Congress people, saying, "Hey, this needs to be approved by FDA. It needs to be accepted by Medicare and Medicaid." So just unfortunately, just we don't want it that those of us who are comfortable fortunate enough to be able to afford a medication for our kids can do it. We want obviously everybody you know this, this great technology that we funding to be uh, accessible for everybody, or for as many
0: people as possible. Well, I know you're busy, so I want to be very sort of conscious of your time here. And uh, let me just wrap up uh, just with two quick questions here, I think. Are there any resources, books, websites, anything else that was sort of helpful, you know, that that you find helpful for doing your job uh, and or you know for staying abreast of What's going on in, in diabetes, in yeah, diabetes very, research? Yeah. We so obviously you
1: know through our main website, strange, JDRF.org. The organization is really good about keeping us educated. Obviously, we find some third party resources as well. You know, you'll find them through you know what are scientific magazines you could be reading. But the people in our media department and the people in our research department work very closely together. And I, in fact, in some senses, I get more information than I can actually deal with. Um, so, you know, they're always trying to educate us on the scientific side of things, but also trying to explain it in a way that lay people can understand.
0: So it's a helpful resource. Okay. So that's a, that's a go-to site for you and for a lot of the, yeah. And uh, we have
1: something called Place, which is our own internet.
0: What is that then? What's the URL for that? So that's that's a
1: place where we have all our resources from an HR perspective, all of the things you might need to do your job to hire someone. to. Okay. You know, but it also has a lot of advocacy information, and it has a whole slew of scientific information as well. And invariably, when JDF sends out to donors information about certain technologies that we're trying to uh, fund, they'll have a kind of a little précis, a little explanation, but they'll also have a PowerPoint, a white paper, great detail. So we're very good at that from, a, from an organization standpoint. The, the marketing department has done a fabulous job of taking that information and making it palatable for people to read.
0: But Robert, what, what was the thing that made you sort of make this transition from the private sector to the, uh, to, to this organization? What were the the, the the major factors there?
1: I think the main factor was that you are at a certain stage in life that a lot of people get to and they wonder, am I going to continue you making or selling or providing whatever widget it is they're doing, which often can be very important and wonderful things. But at a certain stage in your life, you say, well, what do you, you know, it sounds pretentious, but what you want your legacy to be. And kind of even at a very micro level, you want your kids to know that you're kind of doing something worthwhile and you, you'd love them to have that notion in their heads too. So it just seemed like, you know, I could, I like selling things. And I like, you know, I've had business, businesses, as you know, but it, I just thought those skills could be used in a way that it might be more useful in the long term. The society, and of course, you know, the fact that my son has this disease, I'm very personally motivated to get it uh, cured. So it seemed like a no brainer that towards the end of my career, I would be smart to do something of this nature. Fortunately, this opportunity came up and, and it's all worked out. Obviously, there's days, days like in every work in business, but generally, you come into the office feeling you're doing something really worthwhile and helping people, and that's a very nice feeling.
0: That's great. Uh, how do people find you uh, online? On you know, wh- how can they get a hold of you if somebody has a question for you or uh, would like to connect around the organization? What, what's yes, the best that- way to get in touch with you?
1: Obviously, I, I do a lot of stuff on LinkedIn, so my, just under my name. Uh, but they can through my email address, algaraltajader.org. Uh, when people get emails from me, my, my cell phone is on that email and it's to be used. It's not a, uh, a secret number. If people have a concern or a problem, they can call me right away, or they know someone who Often I get a call from someone who says, oh, a friend of mine is diagnosed. Do you think it'd be okay for you to call them? Of course I'd be honored and delighted to call them. So yeah, no, I think the best way is through my email. I'll go at the Okay. You know,
0: and we'll put those in the show notes. Okay. Great. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And, uh, Some uh, very interesting information about what you're doing and uh, I think very, very helpful for me, I think also for the people that are going to be listening. So uh, thanks, Robert. Thank you. Thanks for thinking of me.